When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I am Ben Bullen. Comrade, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but yeah, you're right. My comrade Ben and I will be uh, will be discussing Iron Curtain cars today. Mm-hmm. Um, that is uh, via, well, I guess it's via email suggestion from one of our listeners. His name is Harold, and Harold wrote in to say, uh, "Hi, Scott and Ben. I enjoy your podcast. Thanks, I Harold. enjoy the historical shows the best, uh, like the history of the Volkswagen or the history of the Bentley." My suggestion is a podcast on the history of Iron Curtain cars, like the Turbant, the Skoda, the Lada, or the Yugo. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, he likes the historical angle on these the most. So I think we're going to cover a lot of, uh, and don't let this frighten you away, there's a lot of history in here. However, I want to point out that the, it's not so much we're going to cover the politics and, and you know what all that involves, but, right. but more so how the politics kind of shaped uh, the Russian auto industry and and how the people of Russia adapted to that. And later, uh, the ways in which this, that pre-existing relationship also shaped, uh, cars in Yugoslavia, in East Germany, um, parts of the USSR. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he mentioned a few of the, uh, the models here that we, you know, we'll touch on these. Yeah. We mentioned the Trabant and the Skoda and the, sure. the Lada and the Yugo. We'll also mention, uh, the Moskvich, uh, the Volga, uh, the Zapohoritz. <laughs> I mispronounced yeah, that one. We are going to have trouble with some pronunciations, as uh, as you may uh, have already guessed. <laughs> so um, be prepared to laugh at a few of those as we go through here. But, um, man, there is a rich automotive history in Russia that I just didn't I didn't know about because most of it is pre-World War II or World War One. Right. Yeah, it's true. A lot of uh, Westerners mm-hmm. may not be aware of about the uh, history of the very first cars made in Russia, which, Scott, do you have a... Well, the date. I mean, if you want to go all the way back, which we like to do, it goes mm. all the way back to 1896. Now, they, so they've had cars in Russia since 1896. I never, ever 
ever would have guessed that. Yeah. Because what we think of now, what we we commonly think of here in America, I mean, this is probably the wrong way to think about this. I mean, Mm -hmm. if we we really dig into the history, we'll find, like I said, a rich history of of automotive fascination there or or manufacturing. Um, I, I tend to think of extremely stripped down, bare bones, you know, no frills cars that are very plain in design. Get the job done. You know they make it through these Siberian winters, and they're, they're like, very they're very strong. They're utilitarian, very utilitarian, very little style. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as compared to every other car around the world, as we'll find out. <laughs> right. But, but that's what I tend to think of now. You know, we had a couple of examples that have been imported here to the United States, and that's probably where we get most of our ideas um, of what the design is like. And you know, we've seen documentaries, and we've seen, mm-hmm. um, you know. You know, uh, news footage of, of the regions, you know, like maybe in Moscow, you'll see the, the type of cars that are driving around there. Um, n- nowadays, I mean, now in, you know, 2013, we find that they're going through this uh, nouveau riche uh, era where, you know, there's a lot of, of very expensive, very, uh, very high-end. Exotic, import, flashy exo- supercars. A lot of exotic cars, a lot of um, um, luxury vehicles. Um, mm. A lot of people are really kind of going completely the other end of the spectrum on this thing so so you know take what we say here today understanding that you know it started out with this very rich history it's kind of in modern day it's back to having a rich history but it's more so imports than anything else at this point as we'll find ah, out yes um there are still some modern manufacturers that, that make some fantastic products that we'll tell you about mm-hmm. uh, but for the most part there's this this era that that's kind of a bleak era in Russian car design, and that's what we're gonna we're gonna talk about here because I think that's what uh, I think that's what Harold was getting at. Yeah, when he says behind the Iron Curtain, I think he's meaning uh, Russia. He's also meaning the the post World War II division. Now we're just going to really quickly, um, I guess, fast forward up through some important dates well, to World War II. Well, and also he says Iron Curtain, and I think we need to mention that 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 is a very specific time in, oh, in yes, Russian yeah. history, and it ends around 1991. Um, now, it goes from, what, 19, what, 1917, I guess, or 1920, up to about 19, 1991. That's when uh, the fall of the, of the Soviet Union happens. Yeah. Uh, so l- let's get into it, and, and you'll understand what we mean. But, you know, after the curtain came down, I guess, is when, uh, when they did begin to advance relatively quickly. Right, yes, and there are a couple of reasons here. Now, as we said, we are not, uh, my comrade and I are making this podcast for the people, right? <laughs> for the for proletariat, so we're I don't know not, if I can keep up with your jokes, Ben. I'll try. <laughs> Maybe one of them will be funny at some point <laughs> in the podcast. We're going to have to use some uh, Yakov Smirnoff jokes in this, uh, maybe. <laughs> Oh, we should. Yeah, yeah. He's funny. I was watching some uh, some clips of him early, just before we came in here, as a matter of yeah. fact. Uh, he was at Dangerfields, I think, in the like 1980s. And hilarious. Good he stuff. He just doesn't get enough credit. It was I good think. stuff. Um, His okay. beer commercials even are funny. Yeah, we should. Uh, wait, who is he real quick to catch everybody up? Oh, he's a Soviet-Russian uh, comedian, a stand-up comic. Uh, he mm-hmm. did television. He did movies. He was in beer commercials, like I said. Um, but honestly, I, I was just watching him ten minutes prior to this, and uh, and very very funny stuff. And one of his uh, one of his most uh, memorable lines is always the transposition of in Soviet Russia. Oh like, yeah, like uh, in Soviet 
You do it. No, like in, in America, you drive car. In Soviet Russia, car drives you. Yeah. and That uh, kind of thing. He's but been it, super well-known for that. He's a brilliant comedian. There are also some brilliant engineers uh, historically in Russia. Yeah, that's right. And we need to get back to the <laughs> right now. So with our... You know, side note, aside there, I guess. That we are um, going, so prior to 1917. So let's go back prior to 1917. And, and okay. this is the economy of the Russian Empire. Um, it was deeply embedded into the European economy at the time. So um, there was this real free exchange of ideas. And, you know, that's when you see these really grand automobiles coming out of Russia. Um, look at any car prior to uh, 1917, from like 1896 all the way up to 1917. And uh, the Russian car designs really, really nice. And when I say surprisingly nice, I mean compared to what we did see in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, you know, that era that we'll talk about yeah. later. But uh, some really great designs coming out of there. Now, they had a revolution, um, the revolution in 1917, and that kind of paved the way for the formation of what we uh, called uh, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or the USSR. Mm-hmm. And that existed, like I mentioned earlier, from 1922 till about 1991, when uh, when the Iron Curtain fell, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this whole Cold War era, um, you know, a lot of us here in the States will will think about uh, Reagan, you know, saying, sure. tear down that wall, you know, that, yeah. that, that speech. Um, but, yeah, so they did have, you know, really nice cars prior to 1922, but... Um, you know, at the point when they became uh, the USSR, um, now they wanted these mass-produced um, kind of Soviet industrialist-type cars mm-hmm. that uh, that you know everything had to go through the government, everything had to be approved through agencies before from the top down. From the top down, and it became very, very restrictive, and there was this atmosphere of isolation. Sure. Throughout yeah. the whole country. And this is a very interesting historical question here because one of the, um, one of the strangest things about this period in time is that we see some of the world's most amazing innovations coming out of the USSR. First man who successfully went to space and came back, you know? That's amazing. He survived space. It's incredible. But, uh, for some reason, a lot of the, car industry lagged. Now, we've talked about this before when we go international, Scott. Um, one of the reasons that so many other countries import cars is because it's actually devilishly difficult to build a domestic car industry from scratch. There's mm-hmm. so many other pieces you need to make this puzzle. Yeah, that's right. And uh, they've always kind of been a little bit on the on the backside of this curve in that um, it they, they had a they had a great big car factory that we'll talk about in the '60s that I do want to get to, um, and that still I think even to today produces automobiles. And they're finally getting to the point the point where they're producing maybe more cars than they import. Um, but that's right. not always been the case. And and again, there's just so little trade going on now. Remember, there's this 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 well, it's communism. There's communism that's happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, it creates this atmosphere that's really isolated. There's very little or no trade at all. Uh, that's going, you know, into or out of Russia. It's a great and, point. I'm glad you made it. And and I, I just need to say that there's a lot of corruption as well. There's there's just a I'll call it abundant corruption. Yes, because that's yeah. what it was. It really it really became that way. In that in that automobiles and and any kind of implement like that uh, became not toys of, but rather just something that was given to government diplomats and anybody that was involved with the government agencies um it was it was something that wasn't reserved for the everyday man whoa 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 
Whoa, comrade. All cars are equal. <laughs> Some cars are more equal than others. But no, uh, that's, that, that is a good point. Um, because in some cases, uh, what we found here in our research is that, um, you would have to, if you were a typical, um, citizen, you would have to have, uh, some sort of permission mm-hmm. in order to buy a car. So, so imagine if you would, um, you know, whether you're living in the United Kingdom now or Canada, the U.S. or um, Russia, imagine if you had the money to buy a car, right? And mm-hmm. you knew which car you wanted. Sure. But before you could buy it, you had to specifically ask a governmental authority for uh, the green light to buy this vehicle. Yeah, sure. I like that new uh, Lotta model that they're making there. I, like, I saw it on the lot, and I think I mm-hmm. want to buy that. Well, you need to uh, write a letter to the uh, the agency or the, the Department of Motor Vehicles or whoever it is there. I'm not sure what the name of the, uh, the agency yeah. would be, and request that you can buy an automobile. And they may say that, uh, no, I'm sorry, that's on backlog, and you're not going to be able to purchase one for Three, right. or three or, or four years. Or you may have to know someone who can help you jump that line. Yeah. Or there might be a uh, nominal administrative fee yeah. that suddenly pops uh, this, up. This becomes like a uh, like a, a government sanctioned black market almost in some in some ways. Yeah, it's like a gray market. But, but before we dive okay. right into the different models of cars, which we should, I wanted to uh, I wanted to just to go over and highlight again the some of the driving points. Uh, that stifled uh, automobile innovation during this time. Sure. Now you already hit on a lot of them, but let's just make sure that we get we get this out here. Um, trade was difficult. Uh, it was difficult, not impossible. It was difficult, not impossible, and sometimes this was not the USSR's fault. There were mm-hmm. also sanctions, trade sanctions placed upon um, the USSR for various materials and for various reasons. Well, sure. The United States is saying that, and uh, you know, under communist rule, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to allow our vehicles to be imported into your country. And, we, and we're not going to trade back and forth with you. We're just not going to play nice. Right. And, uh, on the other side, the other side could be equally antagonistic. Exactly. So it's important to remember that when we're, when we're talking about this stuff, we're not saying that, um, we're not saying that it's any one country's fault Specifically, when it comes to the trade sanctions, yeah. we're just saying they affected the yeah. cars. Here at Car Stuff, we're not we're going to point fingers at either country and say who was right, who was wrong in this case. How about that? Let's just talk about the cars and leave it at that. Well, okay, but later we should pick like one obscure country and then just pick on them for no reason <laughs> and see <laughs> see if we get <laughs> letters. Okay, never mind. Yeah. Kazakhstan, uh, that's you. No, that's I'm just you. kidding. No, we're not going to do that. Watch that, out, buddy. No, no. I don't uh, do so that. anyhow, the other thing is that. Um, the other thing is that the way in which um, free enterprise or private industry, quote unquote, mm-hmm. was handled in this economy w- would make it uh, made it a little bit more difficult uh, for some, you know, Joe bright idea schmo walking down the street to get struck with that burst of innovative lightning and then go out and make the next, you know, uh the next Ford or that's, something. That's true, yeah. Now, th- I mean, we're talking about free trade of ideas and, and, you know, being able to bring in engineers who can kind of bounce ideas off of each other. Sure, and, secure and, some sort of capital. Exactly. Now, these were, these were, um, I'm sure that they were coming up with, uh, with some of these designs in, uh, you know, pretty much a closed off area and in their own, um, I guess, I don't know how better to say this, isolation really. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, other than being able to, and a lot of times they mimicked, 
uh, some designs that they were able to to find. Mm-hmm. So uh, we want to talk about that later because there's uh, some very clear cut examples of, uh, of mimicked car designs that, yeah. that I can point to, and I can show, I can tell you where to go to to look at these listeners. So there's uh, there's somewhere you're going to be able to find these. Um, I do want to point out though that in 1929. Um, because here in the United States we're having a really difficult time economically, right? And it's just prior to the uh, to the big crash, the um, the, the, the great period throughout yeah the depression throughout the 1930s, I guess, and um, just having a very very tough time selling some of our our um, domestic cars here. So you know, like the Fords and Chevrolets just weren't flying off the lots. Right. Uh, they did import a lot of these to the USSR at that time because sales at home were so poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Model A's actually were put into production in Russia uh, during this time. Now, they were, they were called the Soviet Fords, and some of these were adapted, of course, to suit these severe uh, you know, Russian winters and, and the road conditions because they're, they're much more poor conditions there mm-hmm. as, far as, uh, as far as road conditions go. Um, and can you imagine what a Siberian winter is like on a, on a 1929 Ford? It's got to be rough. I mean, I know they're they're built well, but um, it's got to be know, the, rough to to start it. Yeah, these Soviet Fords were built under the uh, under the brand brand name Gaz G A Z, and uh, so you'll find a lot of these Soviet Fords that's still kind of hanging around because you know they were built very very well. Um, so they were all the way into the 1930s. They were built, but with no licensing agreements. Um, the Soviet engineers would sometimes copy the designs. So that, reverse engineer. Yeah, so they would look at like say say a Buick that came in. Mm-hmm. And uh, just one example, in the 1930s, they took a Buick 90L, uh, and they used that to create the first Soviet limousines for the Communist Party executives. Um, they made about six cars, and they were uh, the ZIS-101 model, ZIS-101. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're pretty much a, uh, a copy of the Buick engine design and the Cadillac body. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're very opulent, but they're definitely not for anybody. They're not for everyone. They're just strictly for the government officials and, and you know, these Communist Party executives. Right, um, yeah. So, man, I mean, it's just like we can we can go through and we can count all – that's that's kind of the beginning of this, this era where all the designs – and I, I think I should just share with the people right now what, what, what we've got because yeah. um, I found a site called uh, Real USSR. And it was posted on, this is posted in 2009 by Dmitry Yakmenko. And, uh, it shows very clearly the, uh, the, the, I guess the, the outright copying of designs from like the Ford Model A, mm-hmm. uh, the Buick 90L that I just mentioned, uh, the Ford V8 models that we talked about in the, uh, the Bonnie and Clyde episode. Yep, that's 34. Um, they take, uh, like the Packard design from the 1950s, uh, the Ford Mainline. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a, a Russian counterpoint or counterpart, rather, for each of these designs that looks almost identical. Ben. And it is always uh, a, a several years after after the um, the first production of the U.S. models. That's so, a, that's a good point. So the Packard uh, 180, 1942, and then the Zis uh, 110, uh, emerges, which is a direct copy, emerges in 1946. So yeah, there's a five year delay there, and so five or ten years behind is what the Soviet design happens to be. And they didn't always keep up. I mean, it wasn't always like you know, because here in the states we had and elsewhere. I mean, let's French or you know, whether it's a French design, whether it's right. an Italian design, German design, whatever. You know, they're all building cars like. You know, like all over the place. There's, mm-hmm. there's manufacturing happening everywhere. Um, 
the uh, the the Soviet Russia design it just lags behind five or ten years, and whatever design they happen to to you know to get their hands on and then and then mm-hmm. copy or or like you said, uh, you know, what do you say? Reverse engineer. Reverse engineer. That's right. So they were able to tear it down and kind of see what makes it work. So like I'm looking at a, a French Simca from uh, 1975. And uh, in 1986, they came out with the Moscovich 241, which is almost an exact copy of that. Yeah, um, and according to this list uh, that you gave me, they also – I have a copy of the list that you gave me, which is very mm-hmm. nice. They also uh, did the same thing with uh, Nissan, so even cars uh, as far away as Japan. Or You know what? I'm, I apologize uh, to anyone else who just – caught my egregious mistake there japan is super close to russia actually yeah, very close so, very very close so uh i i don't know why i was thinking with the typical american um american centeredness there that's but, okay but this um what's amazing about this is uh given the point about how difficult it can be to create a domestic car industry mm-hmm. uh and then to create one in pr- fairly stifling economic isolation at times um I, I think it's important for me to get this out before we, we talk about some of these cars, which are less than perfect. Scott, I was so impressed. And um, many of these cars weren't that well-known in the West at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're still maybe not that well-known, but they, they weren't very known in the West before the fall of the wall. Mm-hmm. Sure. You just didn't get to see them. We didn't have an opportunity to see what was there. So uh, I was thinking we could dive in and maybe talk about probably the the most well-known, the the equivalent of the Honda Civic or whatever. Let's uh, do it. The Trabant, right? Sure. Okay, so... <clears throat> The the Trabant was the uh, let's see it was built of duroplast. Mm-hmm. You heard of this? I think I have, but uh, enlighten me. Its its body was built of this combination of cotton, paper, plastic, and wool. Its engine was twenty six horsepower, and it was a two stroke. So you had you know of course mix the oil with the gas, um, and it should be mentioned that a lot of people who are car enthusiasts. Um, don't have very many kind words for the Trabant. Um, they have uh, said some things like uh, Trabant smoked like an Iraqi oil fire when they ran it all and lacked the most basic of amenities like brake lights or turn signals. Reminds me a little bit of the Tata Nano. Can you believe this? It's. I mean, we're talking about a car that was produced. The one I'm looking at is a 1975 model. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at. No brake lights, no turn <clears throat> signals. None. Uh, it's hard to believe. And an 18 horsepower, two stroke engine is powering this thing. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, and it was already kind of a um, is already kind of outdated when it was originally designed in the fifties. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's definitely some some lag time on the design and the uh, and the engineering ideas that that are behind these things. Right, so a lot of people think that it was just underpowered and uh, a disappointing vehicle yeah. overall. Um, however, oh, this is a really quick sidebar. It's so interesting, though. Um, you remember John Steinbeck, right? I do. Wrote Grapes of Wrath? Yes. So Grapes of Wrath is a story about a family of uh, from Oklahoma, or typically called Okies, right? Mm-hmm. And during the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, they migrate out to California in hopes of a job. Mm-hmm. And difficult journey. Enormously difficult journey. And they've got this old jalopy, and there are scenes in Grapes of Wrath where they have to deal with dishonest people who are, um, you know, ab- abusing these downtrodden folks. Sure. John Steinbeck writes this because he wants to count he wants to humanize the okies because a lot of people are just being horrible to them mm-hmm. and um a film is made of this and uh it was shown in communist the communist era the USSR um with the idea of you know some sort of propaganda purpose or something but it backfired well showing the plight of the uh, the poor americans is that what you're saying or something like that yes yes mm-hmm. and uh, exactly and it backfired when it was shown because people would watch this and say, wow, no matter how poor you are in America, you can still own a car. Oh, I see. So that became uh, that became the focus of, of what they were. The focus yeah. was the car because people love, uh, you know, we got to think like people love cars. Uh, the gauze is is um, not that bad. The um, 
the Lada Neva has even been called a halfway decent SUV. <laughs> oh, you know what? That, uh, you know what? I want to talk about that Lada yeah. Neva because in a moment, um, when we get back to kind of the, you know, as we're, we're brushing through this history here kind of yeah. quick, um, that was made at a place called the Toliati plant, I think. Oh, this is the um, big factory, right? Yeah, the big factory. And, uh, I know I'm kind of skipping ahead here, but man, there's, there's so much to, to, uh, to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Toliati plant, it was this really big factory that was built in the, the late 1960s, and it was a big deal in Russia because, um, this is really the closest they came in that time period, uh, to a modern European level manufacturing facility. And it was a, it was a big privilege for people to, to be able to, to work there, to, you know, the people that built the factory were the people that worked in the factory as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had this this real hands-on feeling for, you know, what, what happened you know, to build that plant, then to make what comes out of that plant. And, you know, that became a real source of pride for them. Talking and about from the ground up. National pride, that's right. But this Lada car, I mean, that's the uh, the all-wheel drive vehicle, right? Yeah, and it... Um, the Neva, I guess. Is Neva, yeah. yes, thank you. And uh, some people would call it the Russian Range Rover. Mm-hmm. Now, it was... Uh, Pretty rugged, and well, in comparison, you know. And uh, this actually got kind of popular in Canada. Yeah, it yeah, uh, it, it it grew an export market after 1991. I think is mm-hmm. when it started to be exported, and I think they they built this thing up until fairly recently. If not, if not, they're still building it. I just don't even. I, I have, have 1998. 1998. Okay, yeah, I have, is uh, when the sales ended. Okay, got it. Um, but it but it was uh, whew, boy. 1977, I think, is when uh, the Neva was started production. Um, but it was really, really rugged. I mean, this is the one that you'll see. It's a it's a four wheel drive vehicle. I mean, it'll be on places that, you know this terrain where there's no roads at all, mm-hmm. um, climbing very steep inclines through heavy snow. I mean, it's really you know it, it's made to put up with the best of the best of the weather or the worst of the weather rather that uh, Russia could throw at it. Yeah, and uh, and it did become an important export car for them because. Um, you know, I think I think that that car went everywhere. I mean, they uh, they started exporting it to I think Japan mm-hmm. is one area that it exported to. Canada was one that you mentioned. I don't know if it ever came to the United States, but um, we have had a couple of cars here in the United States from Russia. Yeah, at least at least one that I think everybody can think of immediately, which is the Yugo. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, even now you, you're you're smiling and thinking about it. I know I can tell. Well, but, okay, um, we. G- before we go on to the Yugo, which okay. we should, I, I do want to read a uh, little piece of some Lada marketing oh, that we sure. found. Mm-hmm. Made for Siberia, not suburbia. <laughs> <laughs> that I, makes perfect sense when you see it. I mean, it's, it's very yeah. utilitarian, like we said, but uh, it gets the job done. Surprisingly, Ben, yeah. these cars, now, and this brings this up, mm-hmm. these cars that, that are made, I mean, they're very, very stripped down, like I said, very bare bones. I mean, when you look at them, you're not going to find a whole lot of, you know, aesthetics to them. Um, they are really built to last. I mean, they really do. They, they, uh, they're built to go through, as I mentioned, these, these really tough road conditions, mm-hmm. um, Siberian winters. I mean, it doesn't get much, much more harsh than that on the planet Earth, really. Right. Um, it, it really, really is a, a well-built car in that sense in that they, they last a long time. You can go out and expect it to start up in the morning. That is true. And We're- very few moving parts. That's the other thing. That's now, the other thing. Now, just hit the nail on the head. Now, they're not fancy. But no. they've got very few moving parts. And I know it's funny to say this, but, but maintenance on them 
is relatively easy. Which makes them more reliable, or, actually. Or it used to be relatively well, easy. Well, okay, that's true. Um, because now in modern day, a lot of these vehicles are no longer made, so you'll have to go aftermarket, right, to get yeah. parts. Oh, yeah. To get uh, maintenance. The the conversions might be a little tough for some people. Have you ever seen the, the, uh, the used car parts markets that they, they have set up for these Russian cars. Oh, yeah, you can find photos of them online. Uh, pretty amazing stuff. I mean, yeah. really, I mean, they've got a little bit of everything, you know, kind of hanging in bags on, on pegboard mm-hmm. all around and, you know, propped up wherever. But I know that if you have a, a Russian export car that, you know, you're, you're they're still, to this day, difficult to get parts for even modern Russian cars um, in that they just don't make enough of them to have extra parts laying around. I mean they don't make they don't they don't provide enough extra parts for the spare part market spare, spare part, part market, market easy for me to say, <laughs> right? But uh so a lot of these things and if you've got an older car, um you have to make parts, which kind of brings us back to the days of uh the Cuban cars. Remember those? Right, yeah. We've got a great episode on why Cuba has so many classic cars and how amazing their mechanics are. Mm-hmm. Um I want to say that by the time Trabant production stopped oh and Trabant was an East Germany car. Mm-hmm. Um by the time uh the Trabant production stopped, they had made over three million. Three million? That's a, oh, that's a pretty big number. Three million. Well this is from fifty seven to ninety one, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um and now there are Trabant car clubs all over the world. People like this car, man. It's yeah. got a, uh, it's got like, um, remember that movie Rudy? It's got heart. Uh, it's got a little cult following, maybe. All yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that. and especially when you consider the maintenance now, is so low. I have seen a. Uh, there's kind of a, kind of a funny thing that I need to mention here. The Top mm-hmm. Gear did a uh, did an episode, I think, with uh, what they called commie cars. Oh yes, and yes. If you if you search for this, it's it's pretty funny. In that, uh, you know, it has this, uh, this group of individuals that, that get together and they've got these, uh, these kind of, I don't know, it's an eclectic batch of cars, but it's a little bit of everything that was produced in, uh, the USSR at that, at the area that we would think about. Um, you know, these, uh, a car like the Velorex, which is actually a vinyl, which is vinyl strapped, so, strapped over this really flimsy metal frame. Mm-hmm. Um, it, <laughs> yeah. the, guy, the guy driving it said it felt like driving a wet backpack. Uh, it was so it was flexing so much, and it was just it was a bad car. Then there's these Soviet Zills, which are like knockoff Packards. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a car that uh, oh my gosh, this uh, this Chica, uh, Chica, as I think I say it, C H I K A. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. it's a huge. It's a 5.5 liter V8 engine car, and it's it looks like anything from the United States out of the 1950s. Right. Yeah, um, and it's also it's one for the uh, historically it was one for the more connected Soviet officials. But however, this car was built until like you know almost 1980. It was mm-hmm. built late into the 1970s. So you know again, it's like that's like 20 years behind. Um, but it does look like anything out of the late 1950s, like a late 50s Packard is what it looks like. Really, it's almost a, a direct copy of that. Yeah. Um, but there's some, there's some fantastic cars in that in that small episode. It's very short. It's kind of funny. It's real tongue in cheek, but it does tell you about how um, you know parts for these things are almost impossible to find. You have to manufacture right. things, or you have to modify things in order to make them work. Um, it's just it's a it's it's concise. It's well put together. It's very short. It's easy to watch. So it's worth your time. Yeah, again, Top Gear. It's it's an older piece, so you know be ready for that. People that aren't even around anymore on the. Uh, on that show so get emotional with me Radhi Devlukia in my new podcast A Really Good Cry 
We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I kind of want to talk about my favorite of the Iron Curtain cars. What's your favorite? Okay. It's fairly predictable. Do you want to guess? I bet Uh, you can guess. uh, It's I I don't know. I'm not a Trabant. Oh, man. A lot of Neva. Oh, you wound me, Scott. I thought we knew each other better than that. It's the Tatra T603. Actually, I did know it. I just didn't want to give it away. Oh, okay. But oh, uh, that, t- one, that yeah, one has a little style, doesn't it? Yeah, it's got uh, what the young kids are calling swag. It does. It's yeah, a good-looking car. It is also a fairly good car built in Czechoslovakia, former Czechoslovakia time. This was uh, sort of the creme de la creme of the mm-hmm. um automobile industry in that area uh they had a rear engine but there were some that i think had front engine but mostly they had rear engines and um the big names of the ussr's friends and family had this including 
Fidel Castro. No kidding. You know what? I love the front end of that car. It I think looks classy. I think it? it's really cool. Now, it's like it's classy in a 1960 way. Yes. Uh, I mean, i got to point that out. It's not anything modern. No. Uh, however, I do. I really do think that that one is kind of a standout in, as far as design goes. Now, I do like the, of course, I like the uh, the big limousines, the Packard, you know, knockoffs. Right. But I, but I really think for, you know, that type of car, I think that that uh, I think that that model that you mentioned, the uh, the Tatra, looks. Uh, was it six hundred three? Is that the one? Yeah, T six hundred three. That uh, that car, I think it's just got something that makes it stand out from the rest. And you'll, if you look at it with you know a group of other cars, you'll be able to pick it out in a minute. Yeah, exactly. it's got much smoother lines. Mm-hmm. It's not the the form factor is completely mm-hmm. different. Um, now that we've mentioned my favorite car, I want to avoid going down a rabbit hole on that because I could talk about the Tatra for a while. Yeah. But we're doing podcasts on multiple cars. Let's talk about, um, let's bring back the Yugo. Uh, Scott, do you know why it's often called the uh, worst car in history? <laughs> you know what? Do you have I, a guess? Does I, it deserve that reputation? I think I could probably come up with a hundred reasons why it would be called that. But uh, what, what, what's the, uh, the main reason? Well, um, is there a main reason? Maybe that's the better way to put it. You know what? That might be the main reason. Now, oh, one thing that did surprise me about this. Now, it was built, and I, I, I don't even mean to cut you off, but no, you're fine. It, it was built for over four decades in Russia. Now, here in the United States, uh, we only saw this car from 1986, or maybe 1985, I think is a model year, uh, through 1991. Mm. So it was imported to North America for just something like five years, Ben. Yeah. But it was built for, for four decades in Russia. It was that's, at the Zastava plant as well. That's how long this thing kind of hung on, but it, it had a lot of issues. I mean, there were there were some major quality issues uh, that that were the problem with this thing, as far as I know. Um, I've never driven one myself. I've, I've I can actually tell you where I drive by one every day. Oh, every single day I drive by a Yugo. I don't know what year, or I'm sure it's a Yugo GV model. Is it being used? Or it is, is it just it's camping. A, it's it's parked in a in a parking lot of a collision shop that I pass on my way home every day. Oh no! And uh, there's a handwritten note on the windshield of this thing. What's it and say? I, I don't don't know. It's it's so far away that I haven't driven in to actually look at it. I'm going to have to do that. But it's written in. You know, like when people would write on a, on a car window for if it's for sale. Right, yeah, and like um, the soapy letters. Yeah, exactly, with the soapy letters or whatever it is. I think it's like, uh, you know, shoe polish or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got some type of note written on it, like don't laugh if whatever, you know, something. It's like a slogan. So maybe they take this around to, uh, you know, to shows or something. I don't know what they do okay. with it. But, but I do pass a Yugo every single day. So I see one regularly. Um, I gotta tell you, I, even at the time, back in the 80s, late 80s, 1990s, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wasn't ever tempted to buy one of these. Yeah, I, I don't know anybody personally who's owned a Yugo. I get the feeling that, I, I get the feeling that in the Soviet climate, it was one of the most easily available cars, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think that some of the gripes, at least in the West, about safety, uh, maybe exaggerated. Well, because we were accustomed to, I mean, we were probably decades ahead of them already at that point in uh, in safety advancements and design and and comforts, creature comforts. Because I mean, when you look at the uh, the marketing for this car, I mean, I think they listed what did they, they say it was carpet was listed as a luxury in this car. It was listed as a as an as an add on. Yeah. Um, so you know, you didn't get everything with this car. You didn't get you know the uh, the 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 detail and the molding on the doors and everything. It was very uh, very uh, again, utilitarian. Right. And that's part of, you know, to make a larger point here, I think that's part of the 
the philosophy difference, philosophical difference between the car makers in uh, the Iron Curtain, behind the Iron Curtain at the time and outside of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were cars being built as sort of marks of individuality, high performance, mm-hmm. more show offy, you know, mm-hmm. in the West. And um, in the Eastern, uh, Eastern Europe at the time, that is not quite as much of a motivating factor. Mm-hmm. Now, also, um, well, it's like it's just a super bare bones car. I mean, by all accounts, I and mean, there's nothing wrong with and, that. And I the think, cost, it was survival. like I think brand new car, it was like four thousand bucks maybe or less. It was less than four, and uh, even at the time, that was a pretty low. That was a really low price. So you know, it was an affordable option for you know someone going away to college, something like that. However, I think a lot of uh, a lot of parents thought, you know, I don't really want to put my kid into something like this, you know, after they investigated <laughs> a little more. Uh, because, you know, it, it it just didn't seem like it had all the safety features that we're accustomed to here. It didn't have all the creature comforts that, you know, someone might be, um, or someone might require, I guess, on the road. You know, mm-hmm. I say require in finger quotes because <laughs> you don't really require all of that. You just need it. Or you feel like you need it. You just um, like it. You just like it. That's maybe the better way to say it. But by the late 1990s, I guess the facility that, that built the Yugos were, was damaged by uh, bombing. As a matter of fact, so um, I think that kind of put a, a sort of a, a temporary halt to production. That's maybe why they quit being imported here. I don't know for sure that's a fact, but um, later they were advertised as a Fiat-built car. There was some type of uh, tie-in with uh, the Italian company Fiat, mm-hmm. and um, I guess it didn't help it a whole lot because the last Yugo was eventually run off the line in about 2008. Mm-hmm. So all the way up until 2008, they were building mm-hmm. Yugo, even though we uh, kind of had it off of our radar here from 1991 on. Yes, and that's uh, one of the things that I think is important for us to note, to go back to the Trabant there so we don't get in trouble with listeners. Um, the Trabant was on a U2 album cover, hmm. and uh, it was also <laughs> in tour there, Very important. on tour with U2, or Yes, it is very important for uh, us to mention that, Scott. Let us not be remiss. Um, I have uh, something that might be a little bit of a positive point for us, and that is that Eastern European cars are becoming hot on the classic car market. Really? Yeah. Well, think about it, man. They're they're kind of unique. They're probably going to be a little bit more affordable than, say, um, an Aston Martin. Oh, I would think so. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. I hedged that pretty pretty hard. Sure. But um, you know, we mentioned they've got that cult status. Absolutely. And if you want a classic car, and you can find one of these, then it's kind of a rarity. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think that they're out there because I mean, the, the production numbers were, believe it or not, they were. They, there's enough that that they're still out there. There were so many, like the Lotto Rivera. Uh, Rivera? Yeah. Now, they may have been tough to get your hands on at the time, but now, I mean, you're able to find them, you know, used car lots, you know, here and there, import, export, you know, however you, however you find these types of things. Mm -hmm. Um, they are bringing a lot of new cars into Russia, and there's people that make a pretty good living doing that, importing cars. I watched a, a short documentary on, uh, some guys that, that do that. They get these visas, go over into Japan, import cars back into Russia, sell them for profit. You know, they look for certain makes and models. And, mm-hmm. and Russia is one of these odd places where they drive on the right, I believe. However, they do allow cars that have the steering wheel on the right, uh, where most countries that allow, that, that have that, yeah. they require the steering, the steering wheel be on the left. Uh, so if you're driving on the right, your steering wheel is required to be on the left. Um, but Russia is one of these countries, very few of these around there, around that do this, but allow driving on either side. And that's 
primarily, not primarily, but uh, in some ways because there's some pushback from these guys that make their living doing this and that they import cars. Oh, I see. Uh, and that's how they that's how they make their living. And probably with um, probably with the popularity of importation in general, there are a lot of people who are buying cars with the steering wheel configured that way. Uh, we oh oh, I've got a number for us. 20 million, a little bit less than 20 million Lada Rivas, hmm. um, and those were based on the Fiat 124. Now, I'd say that there are probably many, many of those uh, those 20 million cars left behind. So if you're looking for you know a, a low-dollar Russian car, um, that's probably one you could easily pick up or find anywhere on, on a used car lot somewhere. I just love the photos of these, too, because I know that, I know that for a lot of people, aesthetically, this is not... A pleasing thing, like one of the largest complaints is that they look boxy mm-hmm. or something like that. But, but it's so neat because it's a living piece of history. If you can keep it running, true, true, true. And you know what? There are other other options, I guess, because there are also U.S. cars that have been assembled in Russia. Yeah, um, which is kind of strange. They're called complete knockdown kits or CKDs, mm-hmm. and uh, there are these factories almost that are set up that that uh, operate this way. They they import cars from. Let's say Chevrolet here in the United States, or um, Ford, or Chrysler, whoever. Uh, the cars arrive in pieces, um, almost like a kit car, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, only they're they're larger components, and they're just the final assembly happens in Russia, and then they're sold uh, in that market as a as a new car. Um, and I think they do some of these as well as you know from from other countries as well, not just not just the United States. But these complete knockdown kits are something that's kind of unusual. And uh, if you look it up, you'll be able to find some more info about that and they also have been uh for modern cars because there are some really pretty decent modern cars coming out of russia absolutely um there's some sports cars that i think some people are are probably wanting us to mention um (laughs) there's the uh the i'm gonna pronounce this maybe right marusha marusha it's m-a-r-u-s-s-i-a marusha um and they make a couple of uh supercars really uh they make one called the b1 the b2 and then the f2 which is really kind of a uh like a sport um, sport utility vehicle, I guess. But these are really high-end vehicles. I mean, we're talking like uh, supercar-looking vehicles, uh, something you would completely not expect from what we've seen in the past out of Russia. And supercar prices, I imagine. Exactly, yeah. And there's a um, there's also a uh, another car called the Ego Revolt, which is kind of a funny name, I guess, yeah. for a Russian car, the Ego Revolt. Uh, and it's based on a uh, Mitsubishi platform car. Um, just some, and some pretty amazing limousines are still coming out of there. Um, you know the Zill models. I mm-hmm. guess those are still not for everybody. But um, <laughs> uh, man, there's just there's a, there's a lot happening right now in the Russia economy that that's that's kind of deciding which way they're going with the cars right now. And I mentioned this Nouveau Riche. Um, Era that, that's happening, there. right? And the people, oligarchical era, yeah. And everybody is starting to import cars, and they're they're kind of they're upping their game, I guess. Uh, yeah. You see a lot of Land Rovers, a lot of BMWs, Mercedes. Mm-hmm. You'll see a lot of different export cars that are that are considered high end cars anywhere in the world, really. And uh, you're going to find them on Russian roads. And uh, I think that we should do a whole different podcast about driving on Russian roads. Have you been watching those Russian dash cams Definitely. on YouTube? Oh, there's so many of those. There's so many. Um, I want to do, before we get out of here, I want to do an honorable mention of some cars that we didn't get to. Oh, man. One quick thing. Yeah, yeah, go for there's, it. I just want to point out there's so much. I think we've got gaps in our history here, but I, yeah. and I don't want to go back and read them, but but I know that we've skipped over some stuff. We've, we've just... There's just too much to include in this. Episode. This is a big topic. So, so yeah, please mention some of the cars that we didn't mention because uh, there, there's 
there's again there's a there's a laundry list of automobiles that come out of Russia during mm-hmm. this time period that mm-hmm. we're just never going to be able to get to unless we focus on that one car. Right, exactly. So we mentioned the Moskvich 408, I think. Mm-hmm. Did we uh 50 horsepower um I'm just going to read the list. I'm sorry. I don't want to fall in a rabbit. Fair enough. Uh, the Volga Gaz 24. I think we did mention that. Um, the Zaz 968 or the Zaporzets, uh, of which I mentioned at the top. Uh, this is one that Vladimir Putin owns. Very nice. And uh, then we mentioned the Lada Neva. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Polsky Fiat 126P. Um, this was uh, this had big numbers, right? Uh, oh, eventually over 3 million were made. Um, the Wartburg, which we probably would have gotten in trouble for not mentioning, this is interesting because East Germany made it um, to maybe sell to West, Western Europeans as well. Okay, so the, uh, man, the Wartburg made in East Germany. I don't know if that sounds like a car that I'd uh, initially be attracted to. Having Wart in the name is a little bit tricky. Wartburg, East um, German car. Okay. Let's see. We mentioned the Skoda, I think? I think we did. Okay. And uh, the... Balkan Yugos, we mentioned those. Yeah, all of these, you can find photos. I mean, Ben's mentioning a bunch of different cars. If you look at these photos, you're going to find, like we said, you know, the, the pre-1917 stuff, which is gorgeous in design, and then some of the mimic designs that go through, you know, the 1920s, 30s, all the way through, well, the 1950s, really. Yeah. And then they kind of have their own style from the 1960s, 1970s, and it's that uh, almost, if you look at a Yugo, it's almost like that. Just think of a lot of different versions of that for some of them. And mm-hmm. then, uh, boy, then there's standouts like the Trabant that you mentioned, the, uh, the, the 603. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't know, some of the Zill limousines that we talked about and the, mm-hmm. uh, the Packard knockoffs, those that were still being produced into the 1970s and 1980. Right. I mean, those, those are some standouts, I guess. There's some, there's some real standouts in Russian car design. And I think if you, if you just look up Russian cars, you know, just do searches for all this stuff. I mean, yeah. look up the list on Real Russia. Call in sick to work. Yeah, exactly. Do there's, this instead. There's so many different ways to look at this and all the import cars and cars that are coming out of there today and mm-hmm. the history of manufacturing there. It's just, it's a, it's a very rich history. And I, I say rich in that, you know, Prior to 1917, there was that amazing era, and then there's yeah. this kind of like darker period, I guess, where it was the uh, the Iron Curtain. And there's uh, a cars. vibrant manufacturing base in uh, Russia now, and this uh, manufacturing base, like when you think about it, it, it's something that I guess a lot of people lose uh, lose sight of. But there is enormous potential um, to create um, or to grow the existing car industry there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I think that right now I am so into, uh, foreign, foreign made cars that most, uh, Americans might not know about. Remember we talked about, uh, Muammar Gaddafi's Libyan rocket. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would love to do some more podcasts on these things. Awesome. Um, Just amazing one offs, I guess, maybe. Yeah. Amazing, uh, cars that, you might not have heard of in the West, you know. It's a great idea. If somebody could give us some suggestions mm-hmm. for that, uh, oh. we would love to hear from it. Scott, do you have anything else? No, you want to make? I've I've lost focus so many times during this because I, <laughs> I keep I feel like we skipped around in in time, uh, yeah. but I do think we got you know the message out that you know there are these dramatically different periods of design in Russian cars and and look into each one because they all have their own um, I don't know their own style their own. Um, Eccentricities, I guess, their own unique appeal. Exactly, their own unique appeal, and and even to today. I mean, if you if you look at Russian cars today, modern cars, I mean, they've got their own style and their own 
throwing matter. Zest. I don't know how better to say it. That's probably the uh, worst way to say it. But. Je ne sais pas. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, So we are going to leave it at that. We're going to head out. Uh, We're sorry uh, that we couldn't get to all the cars and all the stories we wanted to tell, but we hope that you did enjoy this look at cars from behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah. Harold, one more thing. Harold, if if you want a specific vehicle highlighted, like maybe the Yugo or something like that, write back, please, because uh, we, we got tied up in the history thing, and I know you like that. I hope that it did the job. Yes, yes. Um, and you can find us and tell us how we did on Facebook. Um, be nice. <laughs> uh, let us uh, let us know what you think on Twitter. If you have any ideas, anecdotes, uh, personal experiences with one of these cars, or if you'd like to suggest a topic for an upcoming episode, please do send us an email. We are carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.